Well, good evening, Kenmore Presbyterian Night Church. It's good to be with you, even if only virtually. Uh, you can obviously hear by the sound of my voice, I have been sick, and this is obviously pre-recorded. Uh, but as we begin, how about I pray and ask God to not let us get distracted by these things, uh, but to be able to focus on His Word, which is able to speak to us even right now this evening. Father God, I pray as we open up your words from the Great Commission that we would see the authority of Christ, that it would uh, impact our hearts and our lives and cause us with joy to go out and make disciples of all nations. Lord, I pray that through this you would be speaking to us and changing us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, growing up, one of my favorite books, if you're a 90s kid, you'd probably recognize this one, uh, was Incredible Comparisons. Now, this book has since been bequeathed to my son, Jesse, who's got just as much joy out of it as I have, uh, because what it does is it compares the, the height, the speed, the size, the weight of things with other things. And so you can see the heights of all the tallest buildings in the world side by side. Uh, you can see, for example, that if we could jump as high as a flea can jump in equivalent to our body size, we'd be able to high jump 227 meters. Fun fact. There's something fascinating about being able to make all these comparisons. But every now and then, there comes along a comparison that absolutely blows my mind to pieces. And one of these involved a YouTube video comparing the size of our moon and the earth and the sun and the planets with other things in the cosmos. And when you see the earth and its size compared with Jupiter, you go, wow, we are small. But then you see Jupiter compared to the size of the sun and you go, wow, we are really small. And then along comes this star, Betelgeuse, that pops into frame and your brain stops thinking. It just goes, Poof! can't handle anymore. Because you, like everyone around you, lack the mental ability to fully comprehend the sheer scale and size of these cosmic objects. At some point your brain just gives up. It stops trying to make sense of everything and simply sits in awe of how big the universe really is and how small we are in relation to it. Well, as we hit the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus stings us with one of these brain-mushing truths. But instead of easing us into it, like this lovely YouTube video, uh, Jesus just unleashes it. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. And when understood correctly, these words, they really should have the power of a trillion suns exploding all at the same time to the power of infinity plus one. In other words, this, this claim that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, it should cause our brains to break a little as we struggle to fully comprehend the implications of this truth. And so this evening, I want to challenge us as we unpack the Great Commission here in Matthew 28. I want to challenge us not to underestimate Jesus' claims of universal authority over everything. Absolutely everything and not to underestimate the implications it has for us who are his dearly beloved followers. You see, I want us to ask ourselves, how big do we think God is? How big is God in your mind? And I want us to expand our view of God, to enlarge our view of Christ 
to give him the appropriate awe and wonder he deserves in our hearts and our minds as we explore this part of the Bible. And I'm hoping as we do this, uh, it'll turn over a fresh page in your Christian walk this week and give you a new confidence to live for him and to proclaim him as the true king over everything in our lives. So let's start by digging in at point one on your outlines if you're following along. Uh, Jesus' authority comforts and assures. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, our, local Joey, our local Joey Scouts, uh, which Jesse was a part of, they went on a tour of Mount Omni Police Station. And towards the end of the tour, one of the senior sergeants, he finished up by assuring all the kids that they could always approach a police officer if they ever needed to. He offered unconditional protection and help for any of them at any point in time. But what made this claim hold weight was the simple fact that this man was a decorated police officer. He had the authority to offer comfort and assurance to these little Joey Scouts because of his rank, because of his position, because of his uniform, because of his job. And now here at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we have this, this remarkable account of Jesus. right? A Jesus who was dead and is now raised to life, and now saying he has been given all authority, both in heaven and on earth. And as we look to the end of this passage, he promises his disciples that he will be with them always to the very end of the age. <coughs> but the people he's promising these things to, uh, they're not perfect. In fact, Matthew says that uh, some of these people were doubting. If you open your Bibles uh, to Matthew 28, verse 16, uh, read with me. Matthew writes, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some of them doubted. Now, there are a few interpretive complications here. Uh, questions like, what were they doubting about? For example, were, were they doubting that Jesus was actually raised from the dead? Uh, were they doubting whether they should or shouldn't worship Jesus, because if you're a pious Jew, you worship God alone. Moreover, is it some of the 11 who doubt, or is it, are there others there who are doubting uh, with them, or beside them, or separate from them? Now, these are all good questions, but I think to get too bogged down into each of these problems misses the point. I think Matthew includes this detail because he's giving an honest account of what he'd witnessed that day. That is, some worshipped and some doubted. And I think this is refreshing because if we're being honest with ourselves, it's a pretty fair reflection of the Christian life to worship and doubt. That, that worship and doubt to some extent can coexist together. Now, those of you uh, who have been studying James in our growth group, uh, you'll probably say to me, yeah, but, but doesn't James say that a doubting person is, is a double-minded person, they're unstable in all their ways and shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord, and on and on we go. Isn't James himself addressing this same issue of doubt, but with a harsh but necessary clarity? And my answer to this is not exactly. You see, the word for doubt in James is very different <coughs> to the word used here. Uh, doubt in James, it means something like hedging your bets, right? Making a judgment call, so to speak. 
it's an active doing word. Betting on God's plan and then having your own backup plan at the same time. Right? That's the idea of being double-minded in James. It's saying, God, I'm with you, but, but not really over here. The word in Matthew is different. Uh, the word for doubt here is much simpler. It's more passive. Uh, it simply, at its root, kind of means to, to hesitate, to be uncertain. It's a different kind of doubt. It's not quite as active as the word in James. And so what we have is a record of people who are hesitant, people who are unsure, people who are doubting, but not necessarily to the point of preventing them from worshipping Jesus. And even if you land uh, somewhere else on this one, if you do want to separate the worshipping disciples from those that are doubting, uh, which is perfectly okay, uh, I think the biggest take-home from this strange verse, regardless of where you land, is the incredibly pastoral response from our king, even to the face of those who are doubting. Put it this way, does Jesus scold the people who are doubting? Does he scold those who are hesitant? Does he turn around and lecture them on everything they've seen and tell them that they're without excuse? Does he take a deep sigh and then give up and return to heaven on the clouds with no extra words? Because I tell you, if I was Jesus, that's probably the response you'd get. You'd see it written down here in Matthew. Look, I give up. You've seen enough to be without excuse. See you later. You're on your own. Good luck. Bye. But Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't do it at all. Rather, instead of attacking their doubt, Jesus quietly overlooks it, almost as if it's normal. And then he proceeds with the Great Commission. He presses past their doubt instead opting to highlight his own authority in the face of these doubts. And in doing this, I think he proves that the keys to dealing with our doubt are actually an appeal to his supreme lordship of the universe. Right? A promise that he would be with them, that he has all the authority, and he'd be with them to the very end of the age. It's kind of like the senior sergeant to those Joey Scouts. Right? They, they can't comprehend exactly who this guy is. Um, they probably don't know what a senior sergeant is. In fact, I would hazard a guess that you probably don't know the ranks of the Queensland Police Force to know what a senior sergeant is. But you can rest on his authority in any case and his comfort, or his ability to comfort and assure you in times that you need them. Well, Jesus, for us, he can do this on a cosmic level, even despite our imperfect worship and arguably even despite our doubts. He appeals to his supreme authority in the cosmos, and this is what enables us to rest on him and his promises. It shows, moreover, as well, that given all authority, Jesus is in fact God himself. And this brings us to point two on your outlines. Jesus' authority shows us that he is God. Now, a lot of people uh, believe in some sort of God, but Jesus never claims to be some sort of God. Uh, or even simply another choice of God from this giant pool of gods that you have before you. Rather, his claim to all authority makes him the God of all gods. That is, the only God. 
but not just the only God, the only true God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now note the the singular name here. It it doesn't say names. It doesn't say, look, there are three names for God. It says, this is the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is our basis for the doctrine of the Trinity. Now the next big thing Jesus does is he steps forward and he approaches his disciples uh, and perhaps anyone that's with them watching on both the ones worshipping and the ones doubting, he takes a step forward and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? He's the CEO of the universe in complete control of everything. And this is really important to remember because when it comes down to it, when we realise this, we realise he's the Lord of nature. He is the Lord of culture. He is the Lord of sexuality and politics He is the Lord of climate and finances and marriage and everything. Jesus is Lord over all of life and he speaks in to all these areas of life, over all the forces of the universe and nothing less. So when we see society pushing a different narrative, telling us that that we are the rulers of our own lives, that we should do whatever's convenient and nice for us, Why can't we just sleep in the same bed before we're married? You know, try before you buy. There's nothing wrong with getting a little tipsy and cracking a few inappropriate jokes and on and on we go. Well, no, Jesus is the Lord of all of life. Therefore, all of life must revolve around him. But before we think that Jesus is just this big cosmic party pooper, he's not. Uh, God himself is actually the source of all happiness and all joy and all goodness. Anything good ultimately has its roots in God. And Jesus is wanting us, as well as many other people, to enter that joy. And we see this in the core of the Great Commission here. He's wanting us to make further disciples so that people from all nations can come and enjoy him forever. In fact, if we can wrap our heads around the mind-bending reality of him having all authority in the universe, it actually helps us put into perspective those times when things aren't so great either. It means, for example, that as Christians we mustn't fear any human powers at all, uh, which when considering what's happening in various parts of the world as we speak, we don't need to fear tyrannical governments or tyrannical nations because we are in league with the King of Kings with the ruler of rulers, and Jesus' authority exceeds all earthly kingdoms, powers, and nations. (coughs) So in Jesus, ultimately, we don't need to fear their power. Put simply, Jesus is the one holding all the cards. He is God himself. And the more we understand this, uh, the more empowering Jesus' words should be when he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We're not told that Jesus has some power and authority and so go and try your best and hope that the wind is blowing in your direction. No, Jesus has all the authority of God himself so we can boldly proclaim repentance and faith to our friends and colleagues and family 
We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. In fact, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel or even afraid because it's not on our authority or strength that we do these things. It's on Christ's. And so that being said, if we're struggling in this area of evangelism, of telling people about Jesus, I think where we're lacking uh, often in most instances is our view of just how big and powerful our God really is. I think we're at risk of domesticating the risen Lord Jesus, forgetting the incredible comparison of his power and glory outstripping the power and glory of the largest stars in our universe. We need to recapture something of the mind-blowing authority of Jesus in our lives as we continue his work in the world. And with this in mind, we're going to press on to our last point, uh, point three, Jesus' authority ensures the future of his work. The final piece in the puzzle is to look directly at the commands of Jesus, which take up the bulk of the Great Commission here. Now, we spent much time reflecting on Jesus' authority, and this is for good reason, because if we don't get this right, we'll struggle to understand Jesus' commands, which then hinge off this authority. To put it the other way around, only once we've understood Jesus' authority will we understand the joy and the delight contained in the next few commands. Jesus says, Therefore, that is, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, because this authority comforts and assures, because this authority demonstrates that I am God, because of all these things, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Because of Jesus' authority, go, make disciples, baptize and teach. Now in this section, the main emphasis is on this command to make disciples. Everything hangs off this in the original text. And so underline it, highlight it, whatever you can. Making disciples is the main game here. Just as we are disciples of Jesus, and presumably some people have discipled us, uh, we are to go out and make further disciples for Christ. That's the main game. And the question then becomes, how do we do this? Now, Jesus gives us a few pointers here. He says we are to go, uh, we are to baptize, and we are to teach. <coughs> now, I think what's really important here uh, is noting that the order of these events isn't necessarily that important. Uh, we're not to look at go, baptize, and teach as a prescription of how to make disciples. Uh, rather, as long as the end goal is making disciples, I think the order of things to some degree should be a little bit trivial here. Uh, when it comes to baptism, for example, uh, depending on your persuasion on this one, teaching could come before or after baptism. Here in the Presbyterian Church, for example, we encourage the infants of one or two believing parents to get baptised as is prescribed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so, in a sense, baptism in the Presbyterian system comes well before teaching because a child doesn't even have the cognitive abilities to really be taught as a one-year-old or younger. But the end goal still is to make this infant a disciple of Jesus. For others, especially if you've become a Christian later in life, or perhaps you have uh, more Baptist convictions, 
teaching will inevitably come before baptism. But again, the end goal here is still making disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're looking for some common ground here, I think the best way to put it is that the New Testament can hardly conceive of a disciple of Jesus who hasn't been both baptized and taught. Those two things are almost always the definition of what makes someone a disciple. Now, the second thing to note here is the content of Jesus' teaching, the stuff that he calls us to go and teach. Now, Jesus' syllabus, he's already written it. He doesn't go home at the end of a long day and create uh, the the lesson plan for the next day. Uh, He doesn't stress himself trying to figure out what am I going to teach tomorrow? How am I going to mark all these papers? It's already been done. He says in verse 20, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. (coughs) We're to look back on all that he has taught us. In other words, he's saying that teaching is primarily about verses, not visions. We're not to go and look for something new, rather we're to teach what has already been taught by the Master himself. Now there is a danger in this. There's a danger in in seeing Jesus' words as old and, and outdated, right? perhaps even irrelevant, particularly for a 21st century audience. But the thing is, Jesus certainly doesn't see it this way. In fact, the very idea that Jesus is going to be with us to the very end of the age kind of signals that his words will never become irrelevant. We are to teach what he has taught until the end of time itself. So check your watches. If they're still ticking, then Jesus' teaching is still relevant. And now here comes a very heavy warning, because I think when we think about this, we don't want to be suckered into thinking, along with the, the lines of society, that we can outgrow and move on from these words of Scripture. For example, uh, the definition of marriage or gender may change. Uh, perhaps society may tinker with what the definition of life is and when we think it should begin or even end. But Jesus begs to differ. His words ultimately have the final say, so keep teaching and keep obeying everything he has commanded us, for they will never become obsolete. Now finally, as as Matthew wraps up the gospel, uh, we're not left with a command, uh, but rather a comfort, a promise from Jesus. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus hasn't left us. We're not alone in our mission of making disciples. In fact, he's closer than ever through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So friends, this week, I want us to ponder this mind-bending reality of Jesus' authority, to question whether we've forgotten somewhere along the lines just how big and how awesome our God really is. And yet, how unbelievably amazing it is that this God, Father, Son, and Spirit, will be with us and will help us obey his commands and to go and make disciples of all nations. And that we, along with many others, can enter his joy on that final day until the very fabric (coughs) of time itself evaporates. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son is supreme Lord of the universe. We thank you that you've given him all authority. And Lord, I thank you that we have his words here in scriptures that we can go out and teach and make disciples of all nations. Lord, I pray that the efforts of evangelism this week would be a joy, that we would see how massive you are and how glorious it is that we can be in relationship with the person who created the entire universe. Lord, I pray that you would help us to teach everything you have commanded, not to shy away because of the pressures of society or the pressures of the workplaces that we are in, but help us to be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents in the way that we deliver your gospel message. Lord, I pray where we are tempted to compromise, you would help us to rest on your supreme authority that goes far above our bosses and our nations and our leaders. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have our allegiance solely uh, adhered to you. And I pray that you would help us to, to obey you and to love you and to follow your commands through the strength that you provide in the power of your spirit. And Lord, we lift all these things to you and give so much thanks because of what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen.